0: Bible is filled with all kinds of great contests, showdowns, victories and defeats. And so let's think about some of the high water marks of the Bible of some of these great contests. Of course, there is Moses and Pharaoh with Moses bearing a striking resemblance to Charlton Heston. <laughs> of course, there is Joshua at the battle of Jericho. And there is also Samson Tearing down the pillars with his confrontation with the Philistines. And of course, there is David versus Goliath. And of course, there is the Braves versus the Dodgers. And of course, there is the Great British Baking Show. Now, of course, we realize that the last two examples are not biblical examples, but maybe they will be in the future. Maybe they should be contests reveal what it is that we really believe and what we are really made of and today we are going to look at in the bible one of the most famous contests and showdowns in the whole good book And so if you will, turn with me in the Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that we've provided for you to use to 1 Kings chapter 18. We are going to start reading in the 16th verse. And while you were turning there, let me remind you of where we are. This whole year, we are exploring God's story together. It is our dream that God would put a Bible in every hand, and God's story in every heart. And so we are looking at these different segments as we walk through the whole story of God together. We're not reading every word on every page, but we are making sure we get the whole arc of what God is doing in his story. And so we've talked about promise and freedom and home and kingdom and we are in the month of May in that section that's known as division. So a group of tribes became a kingdom and that kingdom has begun to unravel. It began at the unraveling, began at the end of Solomon's reign The kingdom divides into two, and we find ourselves with decades and decades and decades of decadence and degradation. And in the midst of everything seeming to fall apart, with one bad leader after another, we find ourselves about eight or nine centuries before Christ, and that God rose up certain individuals who were known as prophets to try to call people back to the ways of God. One of the most famous of these prophets is the prophet Elijah, whom we're looking at in this segment of Scripture. The interesting thing about Elijah is that most of the prophets, when you think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos and all of these great prophets of the Bible, we have most of their words, but they not a lot of action. Elijah's the opposite of that, very short sermons and a whole lot of action, a quality that you would probably want in your preacher, very few words, but getting a whole lot done. And we're about to see this great contest of Elijah with the false prophets of Baal, starting in the 16th verse. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, the bad king, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And so here we are gathering on the top of Mount Carmel for everyone to be able to see. The crowds gather. Elijah has said, bring all of your prophets. And we're going to have this amazing contest to finally put to bed who is really God. God. And so, in doing so, I'm always amazed when we read texts like this that this text is, you know, almost 3,000 years old, how incredibly relevant the Bible can be, how alive it is. I love the question that Elijah poses to them and they respond with silence and is posed to us today. Here's the centrality of that question. How long will you waver between two opinions? Eugene Peterson also describes this and says you can translate this. Hebrew is more concrete. How long will you hobble between two branches of a tree? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. In other words, the people want to have it both ways. They are engaged in a great act of spiritually covering all of their bases and keeping all of their options open. What we miss in this story, because we don't understand kind of the language and the culture behind this, let me share with you some of the names here that help to give this some relevance. Baal means master or Lord, and Elijah means my God Is Yahweh. And so you can see the kind of the tension, the the showdown of who really is going to be in charge? Who is the one who is in control? Who is the real Lord? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Jesus later will say, No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. And yet, just like in our day today, The people really, they they don't want to push all of their chips to the table. They want to have a little bit of the God Asherah and a little bit of the God Baal. And if there's a little bit of a Hebrew Jewish hangover of a little bit of Yahweh, that's fine too. They want to keep everything open-ended. One of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton who writes this. Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. In other words, of course it's important to have an open mind. Of course it is important for us to be able to learn and to grow and to be curious. But you can't live your life with a completely open mind. At some point, you've got to shut that mind, like a mouth, on something solid and nourishing so that you can actually receive that nourishment. I remember one time when I was a pastor in Houston, and I was specifically the pastor for young adults, and there was a young man who came to my office, and in coming to my office, he was dating another woman who was a part of the young adult ministry of the church, and she was the one who said, you better go talk to the pastor." And so he kind of reluctantly came in, and he's like, doesn't even really want to talk. And yet he's having relational problems. And it didn't take me but asking two or three questions with as little armchair psychology as I know to say, this is a classic fear of commitment. This boyfriend wants to have it both ways. He wants all of the benefits of being in this relationship without all of the trust and the commitment that's required to close this relationship, to be able to create it and build it around the exclusivity of love. My friends, we live in a modern world that is gonna value the open mind over everything else. And we have an irrational impulse like that boy with a fear of commitment to try to keep all of our options open. And we get confronted in this story like the people watching at Mount Carmel. If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But here's the point. There is no neutral territory. You can't have it always. You're going to have to decide. Verse 22. And then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the Lord your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull given them and prepared it. In this story Elijah is setting everything up for their own advantage. I remember when I stood at the front of the church and I waited for the back doors of the church to open and I was not standing to conduct a wedding but I was standing there because my future wife was walking down that aisle and we were standing at the Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa, Florida Kelly's brother was my best man, standing in the tux next to me. And while he is standing there, we all of a sudden are looking at the crowd, waiting with nervous anticipation, when it dawns on both of us that my wife's side of the sanctuary is mostly full, and my side of the sanctuary only has a handful of rows in it. And right before the doors open, Brian, Kelly's brother, turns to me and says, "'Dude, she is killing you "'with the home field advantage right here.'" This is what Elijah is doing in this story. The location, the nature of what's happening, all of this, if you could understand the history and the context, is setting up the prophets of Baal to have every home court advantage, every possible advantage. One of those examples that you wouldn't understand unless you understand the history is that of lightning. So Baal if you look at old images, of which I was going to show you some, but I think they're creepy and don't want to show them in church, if you look at old statues of Baal, he's holding on to something. What is he holding on to? Lightning bolts. This is playing right into the prophets of Baal. Baal was known as the fertility god and the god of thunder. And so, he is setting this up for them to win. That's why all the people are saying, what you say is good. What is the point of all of this? The point is, when you enter into discussions, conversations, conflicts about who is God, what is the right way to view the universe, you can give and be generous to every possible advantage to the people that you are sharing with or disagreeing with. Be generous in those ways because you have nothing to be nervous about. Only the God who answers will win. Verse 26, the second half. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy or traveling. Maybe he is asleep and must be awakened. A little pause right there. You need to know that one of those phrases should literally be tra- actually translated, but we try to soften it up. Maybe he is going to the bathroom. And so they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. And so Elijah gives them, in this contest, every possible advantage. The location, the type of the contest. He lets them go first. He gives them all day. The best example that I can kind of give you to help you to enter into this is to give you an example with a nanny cam video of what it was like for two grandparents to try to put their two grandchildren to bed. Let's watch this on the screen for a moment here. See if you can see what the prophet Elijah is about to do. They get him ready, they change him, and then of course the two kids, after they're changed and ready, they begin their exercise routine. (laughs) They are going around and around and around and around, and the grandparents are praying at this moment. (laughs) They're scared for their lives. I think she just did the the sign of the cross on her forehead really quick. And they just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And eventually after enough laps, what's gonna happen here is the kids are going to start to get tired and sleepy and they're gonna prepare the beds. A few more laps, a few more, we're getting tired. And praise be to God, they go to bed. This is what Elijah does to the prophets of Baal. He's like, have all day. Pray all you want to. No one is going to respond. Why do I say this? My friends, just as I tell you that you can give other people as generously as you want to every possible advantage because you have nothing to be nervous about. One of the things that you need to know is that evil is on a short leash and eventually all evil and falsehood will run its course. And so we can wait because eventually evil will collapse upon itself. And after they're done slashing themselves and dancing and trying to create a religious fervor, trying to manipulate their God and nothing works, This is what Elijah does next. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he arranged the wood and he cut the bull into pieces and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. I had not noticed this detail until this year, until I was reading this story, which I've read countless dozens of times, I'm sure, in my life, is that we forget that this is in the context of a drought. They filled four large jars with water and poured it on the altar, and then he had them do it two more times. Elijah invited them into the act of worship. They reconstruct the altar. They they once again remind themselves of their, their history of God working through the tribes of Israel, through the sons and the families. And in doing so, in the midst of this drought, I don't want you to miss the context that in order for trust to be established, sometimes you have to empty yourself. And that's what they practice. And that's what they do. They empty themselves. And in that moment, God shows up. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer. Me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up all the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water around the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley. and slaughtered there. I have a hard time with the ending of the story. It's one thing for there to be this contest, this showdown. Why is it that it ends in 450 false prophets being murdered, being killed? I have no reason to judge how bad things were. You need to understand child sacrifice to Baal. You need to understand temple prostitution with Baal. The slavery of what was happening in every kind of form and horror and violence and fashion. So I will not sugarcoat for you what worship of Baal was like in the Northern Kingdom. And so maybe there was no other way. But I also want to be very clear that just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible is sanctioning it for us today. And on the heels of reading the news this morning about another murder in our country where somebody donned military-grade equipment and gear and walked into a grocery store in Buffalo... We need to be very careful, and we need to understand this, like my mentor taught me, spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a great source of human misery. My friends, the hatred and the violence must stop. And people's warped view of God or of the gods that they serve many times is behind the manipulation and the degradation and the evil that we find ourselves in today. Fast forward to the New Testament. There's a moment when the people will not respond in Luke chapter nine to the ministry of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus say this. When the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? What does Jesus do? He turns and rebukes them. This is a direct reference to these Jews who would have known that the calling down of fire on the judgment Harkening back to Sodom and Gomorrah, but even more specifically to the prophet Elijah, they're saying, hey, do you want us to go prophet Elijah on these people? And Jesus turns and he rebukes them because they're misunderstanding Elijah what happened in the moment of Elijah, the fire deserved to fall down on the people for their unfaithfulness, but the fire, the lightning, does not fall on the people. It falls where in the story of Elijah? It falls upon the sacrifice. And Jesus is not Elijah in the New Testament, part two. Jesus is the sacrifice. The fire will fall on him. He will receive the judgments of what we deserve in order that we might be alive and that we might be free. I, like you, am haunted by the stories that we read about what's happening in Ukraine right now. And I read of one little encounter that's happening thousands of times Of a father staying behind to fight and putting his daughter on a train. And while the train is getting ready to leave the station, the daughter leans forward to the glass and she blows on the glass and she makes a little heart for her father who's staying behind to fight. And the Father breathes with his breath on the glass and he makes the sign of the heart. But he doesn't stop with the heart. He makes the heart and in the middle of the heart he makes the sign of the cross. Greater love has no one than this. than to lay down your life. Jesus is not the judgment. He receives the judgment with his sacrifice. My friends, When we watch the news now, we realize there's no neutral place to stand, is there? That we're going to have to choose. That we all have a God, and it's a question of which God we will follow. Do we have the capacity to be generous with those who we think are wrong about their understanding of God? We understand that evil will eventually run its course, that it cannot win in the end. And we need to understand that in Christ, the fire of heaven was taken upon himself so that we might live. you will face many other contests. And they may not be as big as what Elijah faced. But the question is, will you be faithful? Let us pray. Of all the worldviews, the religions, the philosophies of life, there is only one God who was slashed for us. That we don't have to slash ourselves, we don't have to slash others, but that we can trust and receive the sacrifice that you have given to us. And so Lord, will you turn hearts back again? And I ask with a simple, confident prayer that Elijah prayed that you are the God of our forefathers and foremothers, and that you will answer us to show that you are God. And we pray this in Jesus' name.